This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Suzanne Tucker. A veteran interior designer, Suzanne earned her stripes working first for Peter Hood in London, then for iconic California designer Michael Taylor. Now she leads Tucker and Marks, one of the West Coast's most prestigious firms. Suzanne told me some incredible tales from her storied career, shared the secret to working well with architects, and explained how clients have and haven't changed over the years. This podcast is sponsored by Room and Board. For over 40 years, Room and Board has been furnishing homes with artisan-crafted modern furniture and decor. And now businesses and industry professionals are turning to them to help furnish their office, hotel, restaurant, and commercial spaces. When you work with the Room and Board Business Interiors team, you'll enjoy volume discounts, commercial product warranties, customized delivery options, free warehousing, and much more. Visit roomandboard.com for inspiration on your next project and to learn more. This podcast is also sponsored by Krypton Home Fabric. Because everyone deserves a soft place to land, there's Krypton Home Fabric. Krypton exists to make your interiors as thoughtful as they are beautiful and as welcoming as they are brilliant. With earth-friendly spill, odor, and stain protection, Krypton leads the industry in fabric intelligence with a 28-year heritage of innovations that have changed the way fabrics can be used in design. This year, Krypton will introduce the first-ever performance fabrics for the home made with at least 50% recycled cotton and all of the spill repellents and stain protection you'd expect from Krypton for the life of the fabrics. Explore the world of Krypton and discover the many places to source it, at Krypton.com. And now, on with the show. So, Suzanne, I know you grew up in Santa Barbara, sunny California, but that was almost an accident, right? Mm -hmm. Tell us the story of how your parents ended up on the West Coast, because it's a good one. So, my father was a career naval officer, a captain, and he was head of naval procurement at the Pentagon, and he was coming up to his retirement. My mother, you know, didn't want to have a cold, cold life in Virginia winters. And she had grown up in Montevideo, Uruguay. So was very used to a very mm. temperate, lovely climate. So my father said, well, you know, I've always loved, you know, you know, Santa Barbara, we could go out there. So they went out for New Year's. And my father was good friends with a young senator named Jack Kennedy, who um, offered his um, Rose Bowl football seats. And there they were on the perfect 50-yard line. And it was one of those winter-perfect New Year's days where there'd been a little dusting of snow on the mountains in Pasadena. And it was crystal clear blue skies. And then they drove up the coast to Cal to Santa Barbara. And it was gorgeous. And of course, my mother's thinking, well, this is more like it. This is where we're going to live. <laughs> this is where we need to be. <laughs> exactly. So that's how we ended up in Santa Barbara. And so... I moved there when I was three years old. So so thank you, JFK. Exactly. I know. I know. I still have some of Jackie's recipes in my mother's recipe box. <laughs> is, is that right? So they I were do. so they were close family friends? Yeah, they were they were friends. I'm not That's sure close, nice. but you know, Washington yeah. DC being a very politically social town. So Yeah. Although apparently I used to play with checkers and the Nixon's boxer. So it was a so it was a charm childhood and then and then ultimately on to, to UCLA for you, yes? 
Yes. Actually, my first two years, um, well, I was at boarding school, and then my first two years of university were at University of Oregon, which has a fantastic mm. interior architecture program. But Okay, the spoiled California girl, I couldn't handle the Oregon weather. <laughs> just, you know. um, so I, um, I transferred down to UCLA and uh, spent my last two years at university and holed up in the art department and got my degree in design. And I just loved that art department. It was heaven. Was, was design sort of always the, the, the path for you? Or, or t- tell me about how this, this came to be. Well, you know, having an older father, you know, my father basically considered his two daughters going off to college to get your MRS degree and you're going to be Mrs. So-and-so and you're going uh, to you know, uh, keep house and have children and join committees and sit on boards and do all that. So there was never any talk in my house of career that word never, ever came up. Um, I hope uh, that he never actually said to you that you were going to pursue an MRS degree. <laughs> no. I hope he never. I hope he never put it like that to you. No, he never quite put it like that. There just wasn't that kind of conversation in my household when I graduated with my handy dandy degree in design. There were really no jobs in design per se, and I wasn't even quite sure what that was. And I was thinking of going into architecture school, but I really didn't want to do the math. Mm. And my mother said, "Well, you know, you've always loved fashion." And I managed to land a job in the executive training program with the May department stores in Los Angeles. Well, then I got recruited away by iMagnons in Beverly Hills. That was when I, I literally, Dennis, I was 21 years old. I was called into the manager's office my first day there, and I was told that I would wear my hair in a chignon pulled back at the nape of my neck every day. I would be known as Miss Tucker. And that I was to wear the clothes from the designer salon. And that was how I started my first sort of two years was at iMagnons. I absolutely learned service at iMagnons, service and, and business and how you treat a customer. Because my customers there were Nancy Reagan and Betsy Bloomingdale and all of these sort of future kitchen cabinet wives. And um, and I was managing, you know, Yves Saint Laurent department and Bottega and Louis Vuitton, all these great sort of things. And and the clients were fabulous, but it was service. And that's, that's you know, where the customer is always comes first and the customer is always right. And that was a great, great business training because I had no business classes in school. It was all art and design focused and architecture. And um, well, so, so is that right? So, so in design school, I mean, what, what were they telling you to prepare you for, for what a career in design was going to be? What, what guidance were they offering? I don't think they offered me any guidance. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's so different now. You know, there's so much more focus on career. And I sound like I'm some kind of dinosaur. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was, you know, the 70s. Maybe there was in, in other departments, but I think probably the thinking was in design that you would either go on to higher education. You'd go on to get an art history, you know, master's, or you'd go, for me, I was considering going into architecture school. And in hindsight, I'm really glad I didn't go to architecture school. I love architecture. I love architects. I love working with the architects with whom I'm so fortunate to work. But I feel that I have a more open mind about architecture than architects do having gone through architecture school. Um, I haven't been taught the rigidity. Well, and, and, and recently we've been having a lot of conversations about some of the friction that can exist between architects and designers. Yes. H- how, how does that come up for you and how do you sort of navigate that? 
Well, I mean, I think there's a certain snobbery around that. Um, I, I understand it because, after all, an architect has gone through, you know, a lot of years of schooling mm. to get where they are. And unfortunately, with, you know, decorating, design, whatever you want to call it, anyone can just hang out a shingle and say, oh, I'm a decorator. So I understand where that snobbery can come from or where that sort of, you know, holier-than-thou attitude I, I would say to the architects, keep an open mind. And I would say to the decorators, would-be designers, I would say, you got to educate yourself. You have to prove your chops. And you darn well better take some courses. And um, if you want to play in the big ponds, it, education, that's really what it's about. But I think once they can see that, you know, you're not just another fluffy decorator, you know, that's their perspective. <laughs> and, and, and is that generally their perspective? Oh, you know, it really varies. Um, I've come across some enormous egos, as, as one might imagine, in architects. And you just simply have to know how to work with them. And I'm going to give away all my secrets here by saying that um, you have to make it, them think it's their ideas. We're not the enemy. They're not the enemy. We're all in that project together to create the most beautiful end result and the happiest clients that we can you know, never lose sight of that. Well, so you, you talked about sort of how many years it it took before you you really felt like you you knew what you were doing. Take take me a little bit more into that process. So you you went through this sort of wonderful retail training ground at iMagnon, mm-hmm. and and you and you learned sort of the the service side of things. You learned about about business. What happens next for you, and and, and where does your learning take you? Well, I moved to London. I followed a romance, and I moved to London for three years, which was... Is that what it was? Is that what brought you to the UK originally? (laughs) That's what it was. I'm being very candid here. I appreciate um, that. Uh, and it was a, it was a great experience. Um, actually, that's where I really started my career in design because I landed a job as um, the assistant to the late Peter Hood. Peter had been one of John Fowler's last assistants. So I – and it was just a two-man office. So I got this immediate immersion into this you know sort of fabulous English country house way of thinking and approach and all those icky, wonderful colors. And he had a couple <laughs> of the National Trust properties that he worked on and, you know, some wonderful houses and, you know, right there in Belgravia and Knightsbridge. And it was a great training and a great sort of immersion and then, of course, I came back to the States after three years and the romance ended. Um, but my, my <laughs> Sadly. Lovely, exactly. Well, my, well maybe my, not. Uh, maybe not. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Those things happen. You're young. Um, <laughs> so I came back and, and everyone said, oh, you should come to San Francisco. And all my friends, you know, from boarding school were in San Francisco. And um, the funny thing was, was that even a couple of my parents' friends said, oh, Suzanne should go work for Michael Taylor. And of course, I had come from England, you know, and all this sort of fabulous, you know, country houses and <laughs> old architecture and everything I'd seen of Michael Taylor in the magazines was all this sort of white and rocks and trees. And I was kind of like, really? Ugh. And um, <laughs> so and, and, and for listeners who might not be familiar with Michael Taylor mm. or who might not remember, just explain who Michael Taylor was at the time and, oh, and what, what okay. a big deal he, he was. Yeah, yeah. Michael Taylor is considered um, the founder of the grandfather of California design. He was born in 1927. He was the first one to bring that outdoor in and to bring in large plants and materials. Um, he was a master of scale. 
and um, his sense of scale and proportion were were brilliant, and he had such a great eye for that. Let's get back to the story of how you first came to work for Michael. Mm. You were back in California, in San Francisco, looking for design work, mm-hmm. sending your resume around. I interviewed, you know, I met with Tony Hale. I met, I interviewed at Gump's, which had a great interior design department in those days. Um, you know, I send my resume out to anyone who would, you know, read it, and there were just no jobs. Plus, and this... I don't want this to sound sort of odd, but I wasn't a gay guy. And it was really the height of the whole gay movement here in San Francisco. Um, Really fun. Great dance clubs. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But... Every, but but hard for a woman in the in the workforce in in this in the design industry in the design industry exactly and people would say to me oh you know Michael Taylor's always hiring and firing oh well never mind he only wants guys and I I sort of got to the <laughs> point where I'm like well wait a minute just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I'm any less qualified and as it turned out I did get my foot in the door. I saw an ad in the paper, the Sunday paper, on a Tuesday morning, which tells you how serious I wasn't really about looking <laughs> so for a you, job at the so time. So you weren't trying that hard. No, I wasn't trying that hard. I was having a really good summer, uh, rolling out of bed, uh, probably after a party the night before. And I'm reading the want ads literally from A to Z. And I get to the ends of the E's, and it says Expediter Wanted for Interior Design Firm. And I was like, oh, I wonder what an expediter does. So I called the number, and they answered by repeating the phone number. I just said, I'm calling about the job. They took my name and number, and that was the end of the conversation. And then I remembered someone had told me on one of my many interviews that Michael Taylor goes through a middleman. And I thought, huh, maybe this is for Michael Taylor. So I called back and they said, oh, actually, it is for Michael Taylor. And I said, well, in that case, I'm very interested. They said, all right, duly noted. We'll let him know. I thought, well, I'm not going to wait for them. So I pulled out the phone book. Remember when we had phone books (laughs) and um, looked up Michael Taylor and I called And I got his assistant who said, "Um, great, why don't you come out this evening at, say, 5 o'clock for an interview? So I gussied up, came out at 5 o'clock, and I was immediately ushered into a sort of large walk-in closet. And Bob was whispering to me, saying, "Um, so Michael's not here. And I was like, well, then why am I here? And he said, well, um, because um, I didn't have a chance to call you and tell you that Michael couldn't meet with you. And I said, why are we whispering? And, <laughs> and why are we in this closet? And why are we in this closet? <laughs> and he said, because I can't know that it, and no one else can know that you're here. And I'm like, okay, well, this is weird. But he said, so why don't you call back at six o'clock? Well, I was having dinner that evening down the peninsula at my roommate's house. So that meant I had to pull over on the freeway and use a payphone to call Michael Taylor at 6 o'clock. I got his butler, who was the most imperious person, who basically said, Mr. Taylor is having a massage. Call back in an hour. And he slams the phone down on me. So I get back in the car, get to her parents' house, and I explain. I said, I'm really sorry, but can I be excused at 7 o'clock to make a phone call? It's for this interview. And they knew who Michael Taylor was. So they said, of course. Yeah, we, I finally connect with Michael, and we talk for an hour on the phone. And we talk about everything under the sun, living in London, Paris, travel, um, his two cats, Tom and Jerry, um, my cat growing up. I mean, we literally talked about everything except the job. And... <laughs> So then at the end of it, he said, well, I'm going to have dinner now. He said, I'll have, I'll have um, my business guy call you in the morning. 7.30 in the morning, the phone rings, and it's his business guy, his accountant. And he calls and says, well, um, can you come into the office for an interview? 
So I come in that morning and um, I tell you, this man was like snidely whiplash. <laughs> he was so creepy and he had this little tiny little mustache and he um, smoked those horrible stinky brown uh, with a Sherman cigarettes with a little, like, you know, Tipperillo thing tip, on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and he kind of looked me up and down as though he was undressing me when I walked in the room. It was so creepy. And I thought, where am I? Oh, and his office was down on Market Street, um, which in those days was even much more seedy than it is now. So basically, we talked for 20 minutes. And then he said, well, the position is filled. And I said, well, then why am I here? And he said, well, Michael wanted to hire a guy. And I'm like, of course he did. So he said, but Michael um, needs a good secretary. Are you interested? Now, I have no idea what made me bite my tongue because I, I was fairly outspoken. But um, I just sort of did bite my tongue. And I said, well, what's involved? Well, you have to make Michael's travel plans. I said, fine, I've traveled. I can do that. You have to be able to talk to his clients. I'm saying, fine, I can talk to my clients. Um, you have to make sure his schedule and that he's on time places. I'm like, fine. And um, basically take care of Michael. Okay. And I thought, well, I guess this is my foot in the door. So he gets on the phone with Michael and he says, yeah, no, I think she's a good one. And then um, he, he hangs up and says, okay. And he says, it looks at me and he says, well, I presume your typing skills are good. Now, Dennis, uh -oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> I had been tested because I'd been going on some temp jobs. I had been tested at 26 words a minute. <laughs> oh, uh oh. <laughs> so I looked him dead in the eye and I said, I am extremely accurate. Mm. So very, I, I, very I, accurate at 26 exactly. words a minute. How, how can you not be accurate when you when you <laughs> type as slow as a snail with two fingers? So um, I didn't lie, but I, I just, you know, didn't quite answer it clearly. Right. But um, so that's how I got my foot in the door. And I remember distinctly the day I started, it was, it was raining. And so I had. My umbrella, I was wearing an Yves Saint Laurent silk blouse that, you know, tied up at the top. It was from his Russian collection and a, and a wonderful pencil pleated skirt from Yves Saint Laurent and um, my Bottega Veneta boots. And um, there were big picture windows at the lower level of his house where the office was. So you had to walk around that by the side of the house and down in front of those. And I walked past and into the door and the bookkeeper looked at me and said, thank God, Mary Poppins is here to save us. <laughs> I didn't quite know what to make of that. My hair was pulled back in a chignon, of course. And I looked at her and I said, oh, well, hello. Nice to meet you. And she said, and I said, how long have you been here? She said, I've been here four weeks. And she said, you're the fourth person I've seen sit in that chair. Oh, no. So that was my welcome. And then all of a sudden at around 10 o'clock, the office started scurrying and, you know, mad dash to kind of clean up and, and energy going. And I was like, what's going on? And they said, Michael's coming down. Michael's coming down. And I was like, okay, Michael's coming downstairs. Um, I wasn't quite <laughs> sure why everyone was in a bit of a panic. So he came in to sort of my, my part where my desk was, which was right outside of his office and stopped. And of course, Michael was a presence. He was, you know, six foot for broad shoulders and he stopped and of course this enormous waft of cologne came hit me in the face <laughs> i was like oh goodness and i stood up and i put my hand out and said hello I'm, I'm suzanne tucker how lovely to finally meet you in person and he looked at me and then he sort of had the presence of mind to kind of pull his manners out and he shook hands with me and, and said well welcome um get so-and-so on the phone and um i'm thinking who's so-and-so and how do i get them on the phone I mean, <laughs> that's, that's what i'm wondering i know i so, don't even know what to do the rolodex the giant rolodex right and um so i get 
Mr. So-and-so on the phone. And apparently the decorative painter who was painting a blue sky ceiling in Mr. So-and-so's office had dropped two drops of blue paint on his 18th century desk. So Michael, you know, got on the phone and then said, let me speak to her. And he started yelling at this painter, the likes of which I'd never heard anyone in my life yell before. I mean, top of his lungs, just ripping her up one side and down another. And uh, so I looked at the bookkeeper and I said, is this normal? And she kind of rolled her eyes saying, yes. And I said, this isn't good. And so I walked, I peeked my head around the corner and I could see Michael was turning beet red and I walked in and I, I was like, hang up the phone, like, you know, giving him like the T sign, like, you know, time out, like, hang up, hang up, stop this. And he slammed down the phone and yelled at me, what? And I realized, oh, dear, I've done the wrong thing. And I said, <laughs> you're going to have a heart attack. This is not OK. I'm going to get you some water. And I ran out of the room and brought him back a glass of water. That was the start of our relationship. And um, and I pushed back at him. I didn't I didn't take um, sort of his guff that he threw out. Um, and everyone else was terrified of him. And I just figured, oh, well, if I lose my job, I lose my job. And I became Michael's pet. And I was completely spoiled in his office. And and he was an ogre to work for. I mean, really an ogre, but not to me. I was his pet. So Well, so and, and, and how did you how did you have the confidence to, to sort of stand up to him and, and, and sort of push back a little bit? I mean, as you were saying, you were you were young, you were just getting started, this seems like a, a, a an office full of traumatized yes. people, right? Yes. yes. How, how did you stand up to him? Well, you know, I'm not sure if it was confidence as much as it was naivete. I mean, I, I sort of found myself talking back to him, and then I'd think, "Oh, gulp! I'm going to get fired." I remember going out on a date, you know, that week with someone, and said, "And said, well, how's your new job going?" And I said, "I'll probably get fired." Um, it just all seemed sort of surreal. And Michael, as I say, was this larger-than-life person. But I also saw that as soon as he saw someone's sort of soft underbelly, he would just go after them. He was he was really brutal that way. So I learned a lot, needless to say, working in his office. And within three months, you know, me as Miss Secretary couldn't type. That clearly wasn't going to fly very well. And he started taking me on jobs with him. And then he started realizing that I actually had a little bit of know-how and um, experience. So I became his assistant. It was quite the education. So you stayed with Michael for, for how long? Well, he died in 86, um, part of the AIDS epidemic. And then that's when Tim well, and-, and I started our business together because there were a lot of clients sort of left hanging. And Tim had worked for Michael. He was actually head of production and expediting, not in design. Um, and so he called and he said, you know, there's people who need their houses finished here. You want to start a business together? The rest is history. Well, and and I, and I want to talk about some of that history because there, there's a couple of really significant things in there that you that you mentioned, and 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 one was you mentioned Michael Michael dying of, of AIDS, mm-hmm. and at the time the the obituary didn't didn't say he died of AIDS. No, no, he was not of that generation. You know that generation. They didn't necessarily stay in the closet per se, but they they didn't flaunt their sexuality. Um, it was just a different era. You the, the confirmed bachelor, right? I mean, everyone who was close to him, of course, knew, and and clients knew that he was a, a gay man. But um, it was he was of a different generation where you did not flaunt that. Um, matter of fact, he got so upset with some guy who worked for him who entered a drag queen contest, he fired him. I mean. <sighs> please that i hate to well, think- and and what what was that about did he not want to sort of acknowledge who who he who he really was was that part of that or it wasn't so much not acknowledging it was just that you didn't put it on display hmm. um 
and so, and there was, you know, there was so much unknown about AIDS back then, and it had this incredible stigma. People just didn't know. I mean, I remember visiting him in the hospital, and the signs that were plastered all over the door to his room. You would have thought I was going into a, you know, nuclear you know, zone of, of radiation or something. People just didn't know. And so that was a lot of it is that there was so much stigma. Michael didn't want that to be his legacy at that time. Um, I think he would feel very differently now. But um, yeah, he didn't want that. I mean, I think Time Magazine listed it as spinal meningitis or something like that. Yes, I think that's, I think that's what the Times, because I went back and, and reread the obituary in, in, in advance of, of speaking with you. So at, at the time that, that Michael was, was ill and in the hospital, was, was AIDS already widespread in, in San Francisco and, and in, in the scene there? Yes, and, yes. I mean, it was 1986, and I, I hate to even think back on those years. And I remember one day I went to three funerals in one day, and virtually, with the exception of maybe three people from his office, everyone's dead. Um, hmm. You know, that's a hard thing to fathom right now, you know, to, to look around one's office and think, okay, you know, only a few will be surviving. I mean, talk about a pandemic. You know, it was such a, it was such a sad, tragic time and um, a huge loss, a huge loss to the industry. And I can't help but think back on so many who were lost, like Michael, height of his career, you know, what he would have gone on to do. And in turn, all the young people who died, and not just in design, but in the arts and in theater with incredible talent that, you know, where would their lives have taken them? Where would their careers have taken them? We've missed out on that generation um, lost to AIDS for sure. Yeah, but I still, to this day, sometimes I'll stand in a room and I'll think, okay, what would Michael do here? You know, <laughs> sort of channel that. And um, So you were, you were starting to tell us about the, the man who would would later become your your husband, mm-hmm. uh, right? That you that you yes. met at, at at Michael's, and uh, and and after after Michael passed away, yeah, the the two of you sort of form a form a partnership, mm-hmm. yes, and and, yeah. and and end up buying Michael's design business. Yes, we did, and um, well, actually, I knew Tim before, um, mm. and he was interested in restaurant design, and he was sort of wanting to know like how the design industry you know worked and the ins and out architecture and so forth and he said you know can you get me a job with michael taylor and i'm like oh gosh you don't want to work here <laughs> you know, you're a straight man i mean this place is crazy you know <laughs> and uh, he's like no i really do and um and so he did land the job and um was put through the ringer by michael um but he stayed and stuck it out and uh and then we formed um, a company together and we did we bought the interior side of michael's business all the archives all the records um and carried that on and we actually first formed the company as michael taylor associates thinking that well we'll just keep it going but you know it's it's interesting it's um it's not like, you know, Morgan Stanley, where J.P. Morgan is long gone, but that name in banking and finance lives on, right? Yes. Design yes. is different. You know, Macmillan, I think, is the only one that is successfully carried on under the Macmillan moniker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even Parrish Hadley, you know, that name is now gone. Um, but we realized pretty quickly is that, you know, people knew what Michael Taylor did. They want to know what you do. They want to know what your talent is, what you bring, what your style is. So hence, you know, it became Tucker and Marks, which was the right thing to do. 
Krypton is a trusted fabric technology partner to the top names in the design industry. You'll find Krypton in your favorite design center showrooms, such as Kravit, Fabricut, Tebow, Cortina Leather, United, and Greenhouse. And in design-minded retail furniture trade programs, such as Our House, CB2, Crate and Barrel, West Elm, and so many more. Krypton is also a featured brand at over 80 high-point market furniture showrooms. Find your favorite go-to resources today at krypton.com. So, so the, the the late 1980s, such a such a go-go time in so many ways, was oh, it? Uh, yes, right. I mean, was yeah, <laughs> curtains and swags and trims and tassels. Oh my, um, yeah, and you know, it was. Yeah, if you think about sort of like the the, the 80s, you know, everything was bigger and more was better. I mean, our shoulder pads, our poofy skirts, our the everything and interiors and Maria Boada. And, um, it was it was really um, a heady time, I will say. And I started off also with you know a few existing clients, which was great, and then did a few showcase houses. I think I did sort of five in a row. And I always encourage young designers to do showcase houses. It is it is such a good thing to do um, to get your name out there, to get the exposure. And I always say, do two in a row if you can, do three in a row if you can, because people's memories are short, and then they start to see you again each year. Um, and that's that is really the best way to to get that exposure. And then I was very fortunate, you know, I was published early Architectural Digest by Paige Rents. I said this to someone the other day. I said, well, I was lucky. And they said, no, you were good. And I said, well, yeah, but there's a lot of good designers out there. And I think I I think I had the right sort of, I don't know, maybe it was timing. Uh, it was a wonderful photographer named John Vaughn, who was on many, many covers of Architectural Digest. And, and he'd worked closely with the great photographer Russell McMasters out here. And John basically said, you know, you should be in Architectural Digest. You know, let me photograph this for you. And Paige picked it up and... Um, which I will be forever grateful to the late, great Paige Rance. Um, she was a remarkable lady. And- well, and, and as you've talked about, she, she really, she really was the one that elevated f- photographers, uh, yes. but also designers and, and architects in a, in a way that they hadn't been celebrated on the printed page before. Yeah, that's very true. She was the first editor to actually put sort of like, you know, above the the title kind of thing, the designer, the the photographers, which was terrific. It was was quite an extraordinary magazine in those days that she built. Um, It had been around a long time before, but not, not how she recreated it. So and she started as a secretary too. So exactly. you have that in common, Suzanne. Exactly. Yeah. I know. And I tell people, I said, you know, don't allow your pride to get in the way. You know, it may not be the perfect job that you that you get offered, but there is no perfect in life. There's the, there's no perfect relationship. There's no perfect um, you know, job scenario. But you will always glean something from it if you if you go in open minded and with a positive attitude. And it's a bit like the Jack Kennedy speech, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. So it's like, you know, what are you going to give? What are you going to get back? I've personally found that the more I give, oh my gosh, it, it, you, you, reap, you reap so much more back um, in terms of mentoring, in terms of philanthropy. Um, you know, my, my mantra is just say yes. I'm not like Nancy Reagan, don't say no. I <laughs> just say yes when people ask you to do something or to, to help out or to pitch in or to take a course or, you know, support something, a cause. Just, just say yes. 
and it's amazing what you'll get back in return. You, you you spoke to you spoke to to doing show houses and and how important you thought mm-hmm. that was and and you were extremely fortunate that you caught the attention of of Paige Rents who who published you numerous times and 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 put you on the AD one hundred list yep. and 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 really really celebrated you. What else do you think sort of has has led to the level of success that you have had? Well, I've been very fortunate with some extraordinary clients and extraordinary projects. So, you know, you always have to give credit to your clients because I remember Michael Taylor even saying, you're as good as your client. What's, what's the decorator's prayer? Every night we say, um, we pray that our clients with no taste um, and money wake up with taste and our clients with, with no money and taste wake up with money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would also say, I think part of my success has been, um, I'm not afraid to take chances. Um, I've also continued my education um, in design, in architecture, in study tours, in um, I love to learn. And I, I say to everybody, if you don't learn something every day, you're doing it wrong in this industry because there is something you will learn every single day. You know, people say, well, it's really hard work and it's really hard business. And that is all very true. And you, it, you have to be prepared for that. You have to know that it is not the glamour business that it appears from the outside. But you know, I guess I'm a bit of a poster child in that do what you love and, you know, the rest will follow. Work isn't so much like work if you're passionate about what you do. And I think that's the key thing is find your passion and find your passion in, in what it is. And, you know, maybe it has to do with an aspect of architecture or design that you might not have thought. And I know I found that with textiles, starting a textile company. Um, which, Speaking of taking chances. Yeah, I mean, that was a right? big taking chance. Yeah, exactly. Um well, so so I mean, as as one as one who spent a bunch of time in the fabric industry, I, I have to ask you, sort of, what what came over you? So you say I'm starting. <laughs> That's a good way to ask it. <laughs> what possessed you, child? Um, <laughs> well, you know, it was funny. It was about 15 years ago or so, and um, our business consultant Keith Granite at the time, we were in sort of a senior company retreat, and he said, "Okay, put your dreams out there, Suzanne. What are your dreams? What do you want to do?" And I said, well, "I'd love to publish a book." Okay, fine. We'll put that on the list. And I said, I'd love to do a textile line. And so we put that on the list. And this is a case of careful what you ask for, right? (laughs) Um, Put out to the universe, you'll get it. I did publish a book and I did launch a textile line. And I launched it in 2010. You know, we're in a recession for heaven's sakes. Who does that? Um, Someone who just is blithely going along thinking this is pretty, you know, let's do this. But it, it tapped into a part of me that I had not, felt since I was at university. Because, you know, when you're working on someone's house or when I'm working on, you know, a hotel or something, you've got limitations. You've got clients, you've got their limitations, whether it's budget or taste or or whatever. It tapped into an area of creativity where I didn't have constraints. I could, you know, come up with a pattern. I could take a pattern. I could expand it. I could contract it. I could do pink, purple or whatever. It was suddenly that sort of freedom again that you have when you're in art school. And goodness, it's now, you know, in its 11th year. And, you know, it's a boutique line. But I do remember the point that I felt validated on the planet. And that was when I got the message that Albert Hadley had ordered some, uh, you know, yardage of one of my prints. It was like, yes, you know, I'm validated. And it was, I mean, such a small thing, but it just, it meant a lot. So, of course, of course, yeah. that, that that's quite a compliment. Well, so tell me a little bit about the thinking, starting your own line 
versus working on a collection with somebody already established? What made you want to fully take the plunge financially and, and, and otherwise to, to, to really start your own fabric line? And, and, and what were some of the early sort of challenges in, in that? I really didn't want to have the constraints. I think, you know, I'm a very independent person. I was sort of one of those children who wanted to, you know, give me rules and I, I want to break them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't really want to be constrained and told what I could or couldn't do. I wanted that freedom of expression. Um, and so I, I, I said, no, I really, and I, I, we ran the numbers. We looked at the scenarios. Okay, do we license with someone? And, and here's sort of how it might look in 10 years. Or do we do our own thing? And here's how it might look in 10 years. So we decided to take the plunge and do our own thing in hindsight, not really realizing what it truly would have cost. So, you know. Some of those numbers turned out not to be as well, accurate as we would have hoped. Yeah, or you forget to figure out how much sampling costs. Yes. And, you yes. know, that you send out samples willy-nilly and, you know, be lucky if you get them back. And also the the showroom aspect. You know, the showrooms, they're in a competitive environment and, you know, you're put in with other textile lines um, that hopefully you want them to complement yours as well. But there's a great competition in there to sell one, sell another. But I take kind of a philosophical approach. I'm not really a competitive person. If that showroom is doing well and all the textile lines are doing well, then we all do well. So I, I take a much more you know, magnanimous, all for one, one for all approach. Well, and, and does the fabric line, does the, does the design business inform some of your thinking about the fabric line or, or vice versa? I mean, is there, is there sort of intelligence sharing in your own mind and perhaps with your, with your team around it? Yes. Um, but I, it's interesting. I, I take the tags off of my textiles when I'm showing them to my clients because I don't want it to appear as though I'm pushing my own product, first right. and foremost. Right. I also don't want them to be swayed, thinking, oh, I'll choose yours. So I want it to be genuine. American manufacturers make more than 90% of room and board's modern furniture and decor, which helps support local communities, businesses, and craftspeople across the country. Using a combination of traditional construction techniques and innovative technology, each piece is built to last by experienced craftspeople. Let the business interiors team at Room and Board help you achieve your commercial design goals with a variety of modern and unique artisan-crafted furniture and decor. Visit roomandboard.com today for inspiration on your next project. And now, back to the show. You mentioned sort of some of the complexities around the showrooms, and it 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 is especially hard today. And yes. and, uh, and and showrooms are are trying to sort of figure out what the business is going to look like and and feel like going going forward. I don't know how it is at, in San Francisco at, at the Design Center, but I, mm-hmm. uh, I uh, if if people have returned yet in in meaningful numbers to the Design Centers and. Returning slowly, meaningful numbers is probably very subjective. You know, I will give the showrooms credit that they really learned to pivot quickly in terms of presenting themselves. We're all zoomed out after a year, for (laughs) sakes. It's like, oh my gosh. But to be able to watch it afterwards, I mean, you know, I'm happy to watch something a presentation that's been pre-recorded, you know, in my nightie at 10 o'clock at night. Um, But at 
two o'clock in the afternoon. No, I'm not going to take the time to do that. I'm just too busy. I, I think that's so important that the showrooms have done that. Um, I think in terms of an industry, I think, you know, we all do as much as we can to support one another and to support those showrooms. People say, do you think showrooms are a thing of the past? No, I don't. I, I think perhaps the model is going to need to shift, but it's just like working from home during this pandemic. We are not an industry, the interior design industry, that we can work from behind a computer. You know, that's one of my big, always has been one of my big mantras is get out and touch things, get out and sit in things and feel things. Look at the patina of that table. You can't do that from at your desk sitting behind a computer screen. And then during the pandemic, you know, pretty quickly after the first month, I just said to my husband, I can't do this. I'm going to the office. I've been coming to the office the whole time. Don't tell them. <laughs> um, but um, I, I have to. I need my stuff. And we have to touch and feel things and, and work with, um, you know, tangibles. Well, so, so when you talk about sort of the, the showroom model has to, has to shift a bit, what, what, what do you think has to, has to shift? What, what, what has to change? Um, I, I do think the by appointment thing is actually really good. And I think it should be kept up. Even if, let's say, everything became open and free in the future. When you have an appointment, you show up. You know, it's really easy for me to say, okay, Thursday morning, I'm going to go down to the design center. Oh, but then something else comes along, and I'm going to blow that off because it's just time that I was going to go shopping. But if you actually make that appointment basis, I think that's something that should be kept, and I think it feels um, a more professional level instead of just sort of the uh, perhaps looseness of shopping. Other than that, I mean, I, you know, I really want to see our showrooms survive and thrive. And I'm not sure I have the answers to it. But And I don't think going completely retail is the way to go because I, I do think there needs to be a, a level of honorability, um, of honoring the trade. Um, show, some showrooms, some lines are really good at that. Others aren't. I can't cast stones because everyone's trying to make a living. Everyone's trying to, you know, sell their product. And... Um, I remember a number of years ago, a client of mine decided to go off and do her house on her own, um, the second house, and because she had so much fun with me. <laughs> and um, and she thought it was just such a good time. She's going to try to do it by herself. I'm like, okay. Uh, so she did. And I get a phone call from one of the big antiques dealers. And they said, well, you know, Mrs. So-and-so is in here. And she's asking for the trade price on this piece. What mm. should we do? Um, and I said, well, I'm not working with her on this house. And I said, here's what I would like. She's not trade. She's a layperson, but I don't want you to lose a sale. And I said, so, you know, give her a token discount, but I wouldn't give her the trade price. I think the trade needs to be honored and respected. Um, and that's really tough for a, a dealer or a vendor when they're faced with a potential sale or a loss of a sale. So, um, and there needs to be the transparency. I mean, I'm completely transparent with my clients. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's clear what we're making, what the, what the markup is, what the cost is. It just has to be. It's where the industry, I think, in the past has had a very bad reputation. Well, and, and, right. And, and, and that was an issue in the, in the past. And, and, yeah. and some, some designers were sort of brought up short and, and, and overcharging or, or, or gouging at different times. But, but this, this issue of transparency. So you, you sort of explain to clients exactly what your, what your markup is and, and what you're paying mm -hmm. for things. And that's all sort of spelled out in your, in your contract and your agreement with them. Yes. Yes. It's all, it's all spelled out. It's very clear. Um, and it's interesting. I, I had years ago a, a potential project 
I loved the house, didn't really like the client. Um, <laughs> and he was interviewing uh, another one of my colleagues here in town. And he called me back and he said, well, I really would like you to do the house. And he said, so I want to talk to you about negotiating your contract. And I said, well, I'd love to do the house. And I said, but I don't negotiate my contract. And he was so taken aback because that's what the business he's in. He's, you know, finance man used to negotiating and wheeling and dealing right. and da, 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 right. And I, he said, what do you mean you don't negotiate your contract? I said, it's, it's as simple as that. I just simply don't negotiate it because my contract's fair. I said, it's fair to you. It's fair to me. It's fair to my employees. It's, it's, a, it's a fair situation. And he goes, okay, well, I'm going to have to think about this. Well, I immediately picked up the phone and called my colleague and I said, just a heads up. He's going to ask you this. I told him no. Mm. So guess what? So did my colleague. I find out nine months later that this man hired someone else in town, a smaller operation than either mine or my colleagues. And she called me up and she said, um, so you passed on that job? And I said, well, yes. And she said, well, I got it. And I said, oh, how's it going? And she said, not well. He's not paying my bills. And he now owes me $50,000. And I said, oh, dear. And I said, I'm so sorry. And she said, well, he told me that you had been willing to cut your markup. And that, and so I did in order to get the job. And I just said to her, I wish you'd picked up the phone and called me because, no, I didn't. And neither did my other colleague in town. Right, and right. this man had lied. He had totally lied to her and said, oh, these two top designers are willing to cut their markup to me to get this job. And so she did. Like in anything, you know, there's bad clients out there. And um, I think that's where it's really important to be collegial. You know, if something doesn't seem right, pick up the phone and call your colleague and just say, heads up on this one. Well, and and, and is this, you, you and I have talked a little bit in the past about how different the industry feels to, today. And, yes. And, Right, and you and you you mentioned Albert Hadley earlier, and I and I know that you've you've told me that sort of at the end of his career, he sort of commented on the fact that clients are very very different today mm-hmm. than they were sort of in the in the heyday, perhaps of, of Parrish Hadley. So, so tell me a little bit about what 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 is different today? What what is more challenging about this about this industry today? For you? Well, you know, I mean, everything changes, obviously, and. And I think you have to embrace change. I know you do. You have to embrace change. You know, fighting it isn't going to get you anywhere. But, you know, Albert made the comment towards the end of his career that the industry had changed so much and that the clients were no longer as gracious. The client decorator relationship has changed so much. And that's also been certainly with the advent of the internet and all of that and that anyone can, you know, put in, you know, Japan secretary, and they'd come up with you know numerous options of something, or you know anyone can go there and do that. And I feel that the the respect for the industry uh, has been taken away to a certain degree um, because perhaps that mystery that shrouded it, like you know you couldn't go into the design building unless you were you know licensed designer or whatever. And I'm not saying it should be that, but I think that with the you know mass merchandising of the internet i think it's taken away from the value of what a good designer can bring to the table for you and i think a bit of the respect and you know everyone has access to it it's no mystery but not everyone can put things together not everyone can see what the right scale is not everyone can choose the right thing or they make all the mistakes but but the industry has has definitely changed 
from the standpoint of how what the expectations are, I think, of the client as well. And that, I think, is the biggest challenge for today for designers because it – what is that? Um, decorate on a dime, design on a dime? You know? Yes. No, no. That's, that's a little fantasy story. Um, <laughs> well, so tell me what you mean exactly. Well, it doesn't happen fast. I mean, sure, you can order something off the internet and, um, you know, you can get it relatively quickly. Like maybe you can get it in a week if it's an in-stock thing. But even a lot of the retail um, sites now, they'll say, oh, in-stock, three-week delivery. But when you actually go to place the order, it's three months delivery. That's what the pandemic has done to us. Um, The supply and demand has, you know, the supply has diminished. The demand has gone up. So, for example, my upholsterer right now, they can't get foam ordered and they can't get it in less than two months right now. Um, microchips are back ordered. I mean, all sorts of things because of the <laughs> yes. pandemic. So we're dealing with that. And the client, I think, gets very impatient and thinks that, well, can I pay more and get it faster? No. Nowadays, no. That doesn't even have any clout. The most valuable thing to find in a client is someone who has not just the means, but the patience to actually st- stay in for the long haul of a project. Projects, really good, well-thought-out projects don't happen in a couple of months. Um, You know, a year, a year to decorate a room is not unusual. I just finished installing a project. Granted, it was a huge restoration house, massive remodeling, you know, underground swimming pool, all sorts of things. And that took eight years. That's a long time when you're in your mid-20s and you think, I can't stand how long this project is taking um, because that's already a third of your lifetime. But, um, (laughs) you know, so I get it. Um, But I think, you know, you need to be realistic with people in terms of how the industry is now. It does take a long time to do good design. Well, and, and, and I guess that's, that's what I want to understand a, a little bit better. And, and I, I, was, I was speaking to someone who, if she isn't already the president of your fan club, you, you should make her the president, Jill, Jill, Jill Cohen. Uh, uh, yes. And, uh, and, and she's a, she, one of the things that she talked about with regards to, to you and your design, and she, she travels around going to all these different projects and seeing all of these different things. And she just talked about the layers and layers of your projects. Speak to that a a little bit more. Yeah. Well, that's lovely that Jill says that. Um, My work, and again, I will credit my experience with Michael Taylor on this one. If people look up sort of Michael Taylor in magazines, they're going to see that California look the white, the rocks, the ball pillows, the trees, right? But Michael's true genius that I was able to experience was his use of antiques and antiquities and art and mixing it in with old with the new. Um, I mean, everyone talks about the mix now. Michael was doing it, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And that's what resonated with me. So I still employ that. That's that's who I am in my design work. Whether it is a very traditional interior, whether it's a very contemporary interior, it still has that level of layering. The nuances, the nuances of a trim, of a detail, of a mitered corner. Um, I mean, I could go on and on on all these kinds of you know technical aspects that I am old school. I still love to employ. And uh, it's funny, I had... Years ago, I had a client call up. He was going over the proposals for the, one of the rooms or something. And he said, um, Suzanne, I've got some questions. He was from the South. So I have to say this in a Southern accent. Suzanne, my name is like three syllables in the South, right? And uh, I, he said, I need to know 
what a half inch ruched flange is and why do I need it? <laughs> so it did make me laugh then. It makes me laugh now um, because we're not really talking about need and any of these things, right? But I love the fact that he just had this incredible sort of curiosity. It's that kind of level. And it was a cleaner design look, but it did. I did put in the details like that. So that's what Jill is talking about is that I will take even the simplest or most casual sort of design, but I will add the nuances of layers to it. That's what really gives the soul, I think, to an interior. Well, you, you, you mentioned Michael Taylor and, and, and earlier in the conversation, you talked about sort of you, you learned how, how not to run an office in, in, in many, many ways. And, and, and certainly one of the big challenges for many design offices today, yours included, is, is hiring. And, and right, and everyone is competing in, in a in a pretty small pool of of design talent out there, yes. to, right? To 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 sort of bring on good people, and and so knowing that you didn't want to create an environment similar to the early Michael Taylor offices, mm-hmm. uh, what 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 sort of environment do you try and and create, and and how do you how do you sort of think about how you can you have the special challenge being in San Francisco of having yes. to combat the tech industry and and come up against lots of lots of other industries that that pay a lot more as you were saying earlier than the design yes. industry often does and uh, and that's challenging too so how how do you lure good talent and 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 what are you sort of looking for these days mm. in, you know, we can't in our industry, we can't compete with the tech companies and all of those things. I mean, I'm not going to feed you lunch every day and I'm not going to babysit your children and I'm not going to take your dog for a walk. So, you know, right there, if and I, and I don't have a gym to offer you. So if that's what you're looking for, you really need to go to those companies because they knock it out of the park. Um, but it's really hard these days because, first off, um, you know, it's so important, I feel, to go to design school. And um, New York School of Interior Design probably does one of the best jobs out there in terms of giving a great grounded education in interiors. And they also still teach residential. And I think that's really important because I think so much about um, residential design, about how people live, how you need to walk through a room, walk through a house, can get translated into then commercial work as well. You know, it's so important, I think, to get that education because then at least you can come with something in hand. Um, invariably, what I'm finding, I'm going to say in the last sort of, you know, five, six years, is that the young people I'm interviewing, and they've either come from another firm or um, perhaps a retail environment, um, and I'll ask them, well, what did you do in this room? And they'll say, oh, well, I found this and I found that. And um, I'll say, okay. And I said, well, let me just tell you the difference of what we're doing here. What you did is shopping. What we do is design. And there's a big difference. Not that shopping's bad, but that is shopping, like going for a pair of shoes. But then can you actually design a chair? Can you design a table? Can you design what you can't find shopping? So there's a big difference right now. There's sort of a big chasm, I think, in terms of what people are thinking is, oh, I can be a designer versus what really is a designer. So, and is that for you an immediate filter? I mean, are you are you only looking for people who have who have been through the education process and who have been through other firms and, and sort of come up through the ranks? I mean, is that sort Well, of- anyone who's been through design school, um, you know, I'll certainly put their resume at the top of the list. Um, but experience is also oftentimes more valuable. You know, I look for passion. 
I look for like, like, what do they love? You know, I'll ask the question, I'll say, okay, give me your favorite sort of designers. Who, who do you love to, to, to read about and follow and, you know, dead or alive? I mean, give me, give me who you like, right? Could be Albert Hadley. It could be, um, you know, Michael Smith. It could be, you name it. I am always struck when they give me the name of a stylist on Instagram and who is, you know, this influencer, this new title, that that's who they follow and that's who they think is doing fabulous things. And I'm like, wow, you know, chances are, you know, 10 years from now, that person is going to be history and uh, they'll have gone on to some new thing. Right. But that's, that's a, that's, that's like ice skating on the surface. And that's fine. That's what you want to do, ice skate. Um, but if you really want to go into the depths, you know, you need to learn um, and educate and, you know, do some do some background, especially when you go for an interview, for heaven's sakes. You know, I had someone recently who, well, can I leave early um, four days a week so that I can go to my workout class? I'm like, no, you can't. I don't <laughs> get to do that. So why should you get to do that? I would love to do that. I, I can't do that. Although I'll tell you a funny story one time when I was Michael's assistant. Please. Sister Parrish was coming to speak at the museum here. And I wanted to go hear Sister Parrish speak. Of course. Of course. And so I asked Michael if I could, you know, have that time off, whatever, next Thursday to go and, and hear Sister Parrish speak. And he said, no. And I looked at him and I said, no. And he said, no. Why do you want to go, go hear her? I think he was jealous. <laughs> of course. And and I said because she's Sister Parish, and you know, and he said no. And I said, well, then I'm calling in sick on Thursday, and I did. I I went and saw her. <laughs> so, and I'm glad I did. And Michael was just being mean. <laughs> as as it sounds like he was much of the time. <laughs> he was. He was like, why? Are, this takes so much effort to be this mean. God. But um, yeah, no. So I did anyway. Um, I didn't get fired. You didn't get fired, and you got to see Sister Parish, which exactly. Oh my God! I remember I was sitting in the seventh row. I was right in front of her. I was just enthralled, and you know, I was twenty six years old. That was that was big deal. The lesson is, even if you have to call in sick, you should always go out of your way to see icons of the of the industry if you can. Yes, but you know, if you have to call in sick, I mean, for heaven's sake, go, <laughs> go slap your boss upside the head. But um, no, I I will say to my staff. Um, Yes, I've never said no to any of them for to anything like that. Uh, Suzanne, we could talk to you all day long, but uh, <laughs> sadly, we, we we have to wrap up. Thank you so much for spending time with us because it, it's really been incredibly enjoyable. Oh, you're so welcome. I've enjoyed it as well, and I love listening to your podcasts. They're really great. They're really oh, wonderful, well, and they're they're I think they're well, enlightening and educational for people, and um, some funny ones. And so, yeah, thank you, thank you for well, having me. It's such a pleasure. You're so nice to say. I, I really appreciate it. And, oh. and it, it's, been, it's been such fun. Thank, so thank you, you, Dennis. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job postings, or join our BOH Insider membership community for access to exclusive online educational workshops, a free print subscription, a private Facebook group, and more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Albert Burge for Podfly. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>